Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him before Areopagus, saying, may we know that this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysus and Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Uh, you know, this week has been... Uh quite a week, hasn't it? How many of you watched at least part of the funeral service for President Bush? Raise your hand. Wow, what a moving uh, service that was. And it was interesting how uh, one of the themes that arose from that service, from the newscasters and the commentators after the funeral was, they were talking about how the tone of that funeral was so different than the toxic tone that is in our political system right now between the opposing uh, parties. And it, was a, it, was, it resonated, I think, with everyone, uh, what they were hearing and, the, and just the grace and the winsomeness of the men who brought eulogies uh, to President Bush, and it reflected upon him as an individual. And, uh, and who he was. And, and of course, we can't be naive. President Bush was uh, a, I mean, he was a World War II veteran and a, the director of CIA and the president. He, he was a master at real politic. He made hard calls and did hard things during his career. Yet, what resonates is that he never sunk to that level of where he questioned his opponent's patriotism 
or he, he doubted their motives and their love of their country, and he, and he hurled horrible accusations at them. He never did that. He treated them, he, he accepted their sincerity and their basic human dignity as individuals, even if they were on opposite sides of the issue. And that's just something that we're missing today. As you look at our society, our culture, and our country, it's becoming dangerously fractured. And it seems that everyone at times is screaming at each other, hurling abuse and shouting accusations and arrogantly shouting things like racist and bigot. And then, of course, there's the one, you know, treason. And you know, the last time I checked, treason earns the death penalty. And, and now that's just thrown around lightly. And then the one that really makes me roll my eyes is the you're a Nazi accusation. And that's just thrown around and it, it's such an insult to all of the uh, folks who survived the Holocaust and the actually experienced a Nazi. I got news for you, a Democrat or a Republican in their position is nowhere near being like a Nazi. Yet we use this type of rhetoric in our country today because we are that fractured as a country. And so this value that we have this morning in this message is particularly germane. We are in a series on our church values. You know, the values are our shared convictions. They provide the why behind our what. And a what is our mission of bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. And so we have looked at two. We, we've had living authentically, and now last week we saw connecting intentionally. And this week we want to look at a third of our church values, proclaiming graciously. And we have a little tagline that we associate with each of our values. In this case, in a world of arrogance and hypocrisy, we declare the absolute truth of God's word and its message of gospel grace with boldness and kindness. Uh, this, this value is reflected in the passage here this morning. This story from Paul's ministry is a great example of someone who walked into an ungodly, uh, an unchristian, a very pagan culture and environment that was hostile to him, and he graciously proclaimed the gospel. And so what we see in this story this morning are the ingre some ingredients, the requirements that have to be in place if we are going to change the tone in this country and if we are going to engage our community and our friends and coworkers with the gospel in a gracious way. There's three requirements here. The first one, in beginning in verses 17, 16 to 23, is a God-honoring approach. Paul approach to the Athenians, it honored God in three ways. He honored God through his conversation, through his contextualization, and through his motivation. Now, what do I mean by that when I say a godly conversation? If you look at verse 17, it says, so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons <clears throat> and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some of them said, what does this babbler wish to say? There's some important words in those verses that help us see how Paul's conversation was, was godly. That first word, reason, you ought to put a box or underline the word reason. It's the Greek word dialogamo. 
And in it, and my favorite uh, kind of lexicon, the explanation or expansion of that word, dialogamo, is to engage or to engage in instructional discourse that frequently includes the exchange of opposite opinions. So he reasoned, he engaged in discourse, instructional discourse with other people, and there was the, the, the swapping of opposite opinions. He was reasoning with them in the marketplace, Jews and Gentiles and in the synagogues, and then the, the schools of philosophy, the major schools of philosophy at that time, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and Athens was a place of, of philosophy. They were conversing. That word's also important. It means to engage in the mutual pondering of a matter. The mutual pondering of a matter. Doesn't that give you a sense of what was going on? In other words, Paul was not going into the place screaming at them his ideas. They were having a conversation. They were exchanging ideas and the validity of opinions. Back at Thanksgiving, my son was here from college, and we were watching one of the news programs, and I kind of expressed my disgust and uh, my son w w said something. I said, you know what I miss, son? I miss the firing line with William F. Buckley. How many of y'all remember firing line? Yeah, a lot of you do. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Or even Crossfire on CNN when that came out. You see, these were two programs. He said, what was the big deal? I said, you know, William F. Buckley and, you know, on Crossfire, we said, they would bring in subject matter experts on, on opposite sides of maybe of an issue. And they would sit down and they would have an intelligent conversation where someone could say what he thought and believed and put it out there and the other person would listen and then give an alternate. And so over the course of the half hour or the hour, you would get a very full orb presentation of the data and of the opinions, but it was done in a way that you felt like when the show was over, they probably carried on the conversation at the local watering hole, right? And it helped us be better informed. And I said, versus what we just saw on television. Today, the talking heads, the common tactic is somebody starts to say a sentence, and before they can finish the sentence, the other person begins to shout over them, and, it, and they will not let them finish, and it just becomes a shouting match of who can shout the longest. And they'll just keep talking very loud, as if the louder I talk, the better my point will become. And it just irritates the fool out of me. Yeah, amen. Hey, can I just say something, church? For us to have godly conversations, we cannot be talking heads like we see today. Paul was not a talking head. Paul engaged in dialogamo. Does that sound familiar? That's the root for our English word, dialogue. Paul engaged in dialogue, and he reasoned with them. That, this means that when you're in a dialogue, what do you do? You actually shut up and listen. Two ears, one mouth, right? Twice as much listening as there is talking. And you listen to the other person, and you try to understand where they're coming from, and you respect them, and you give them the dignity that they deserve as individuals who are created in the image of God. Not doubting and accusing and doubting their motives and offering up rash accusations, but having a godly conversation. Church, a godly conversation is all about persuasion, not punishment and screaming and shouting. 
I've been reading a book came out a couple of years ago by Os Guinness, and the name of the book is Fool's Talk. Now, it's kind of a play on word, because, you know, we don't normally want to hear a fool talk. But what he's getting at is the foolishness of the gospel. And how do we talk about the gospel in today's world? And this is one of the things that he says. He says, our urgent need today is to reunite evangelism and apologetics to make sure that our best arguments are directed toward, and listen to this, toward winning people and not just winning arguments, and to seek to do all this in a manner that is true to the gospel itself. Wonderful definition of godly conversation, but there was also, in his approach, godly contextualization. You know, in verses 19 and 20, we read that Paul was brought before the Areopagus. This was the, the central political body in the city of Athens. It was a court, a tribunal of sort, where they would bring people and they would present things, and may, oftentimes verdicts were rendered or whatever the case may be. And so they bring Paul before the Areopagus so he can explain what he is proclaiming to them. And verse 21 says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, verse 22, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Did you catch that? Did you see what Luke was kind of giving us insight in there? In, in, in verse 20, he begins, 21, he begins to lay for us the cultural setting, what, what Athens was like in that day and time. Remember, Athens, and those of you who remember anything from history of Western civilization or whatever, uh, Athens was critical in the development of Western civilization. It was the birthplace of what we call democracy. It was his own city-state. It's the home of Socrates and Plato and and Aristotle, of, of multiple famous poets and philosophers, and including here, as we see in this passage, the Epicureans and the Stoics. It was the intellectual capital of the ancient world. It reached its heyday in the three and four hundreds, but by this time, it's just kind of a, a shadow of its former glory. It's not that large of a city yet it is still highly respected as an intellectual center of the Mediterranean world. It's a free city. Rome allowed it to govern themselves, and so they still practiced this form of democracy where they would come together in the Areopagus, and they would hear opposing items, and then votes would be taken. And so Paul, that's interesting, those next words, as, he, as you look at that context of where he was at, so Paul... And he begins to speak to them winsomely in a manner that they would appreciate. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You see, he was taking into account that when you walked into Athens, as one Roman historian put it, that the number of statues to the Greek gods outnumbered the population itself. They were everywhere. He said it's easier to find a statue of a god than a living, breathing human being. Uh, every building that was 
was dedicated would have multiple patron gods and statues of those gods associated with the building. And so they lined the roads with statues of various gods. And of course, the artwork and much of our sculpture today harkens back to what was done in Athens. Now, now Paul doesn't go in there and say, you know, I came in here and I realized you were a bunch of pagan idol-worshiping fiends, does he? No, he takes it and says, I perceive that you are a very religious people. You know, there's two different ways you can say something, the truth, right? You can say it in a way that's very offensive and shuts down the conversation, or you can say it winsomely and use it to build a bridge. And this is what Paul does. This is what it means to contextualize the gospel. As I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. You see, he's finding common ground with his audience, with the people that he is trying to influence and proclaim the word of God to. Finding common ground, doing things that build bridges rather than walls. This is gracious proclamation. And this is what it looks like to contextualize the gospel. In verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul dips into their culture. He's knowledgeable enough about their, their body of thought, their intellectual thinking, their arts and their sciences and, every, and their history, and he dips into it and he borrows from it and he redeems it so that he can communicate the gospel and even their own language. If he was here today, he probably would know the lyrics of a Taylor Swift song or something. He would know, our, he would know the movies and the different cultural movements that are happening. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he would use that knowledge to build bridges to the people who he's trying to influence. He would use the sports, the arts, what's happening in politics, what's happening in science, what's happening in entertainment. And he would be versed well enough so that through those items, he could establish a relationship and connect and build a bridge to communicate graciously. One of my favorite passages that describes this philosophy of gospel, godly contextualization that Paul implemented was 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 19, he says, even though I'm a free man with no master, I've become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. What a phenomenal philosophy. This is 
godly contextualization. It's godly because he says here, listen, I do what I need to do. I live like the Jew or the Gentile. I know who they are, but I do not violate the law of Christ. So I'm not entering into sin so that I can have a better relationship with those who need the gospel. I'm not going to go get drunk or high so that I can minister to the alcoholic and the drug addict. Right? I'm going to be true to the Word of God and what, the God, what God says how I'm to live in honor of Christ. But beyond that, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to relate to the people where God has put me. That's contextualization. Godly contextualization, godly conversation. This is vital to having a God-honoring approach and proclaiming the gospel. There was also a godly motivation. Why did Paul react in, in, to the Athenians in this way? It says in verse 18 or 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, in other words, what had happened, he had come to, to Macedonia from Asia Minor, he administered in Philippi and Thessalonica and, and in Berea. In Berea, he had to be, you know, shuffled out of town very quickly by the Berean Christians. They left behind Timothy and Silas, and they got Paul to the ocean, and they got on a boat with him, these Berean Christians, and they brought him to safety in Athens, and then they returned home. He's all by himself in the city of Athens. He doesn't sit in a corner and sulk and hide. Instead, he engages with the city. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That word provoked, it doesn't appear very often, but its normal meaning is to be filled with anger and irritation and wrath. So is it saying that when Paul saw this, he was angry at the Athenians? So he's going in haranguing them? No, not at all. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament version of the, the Greek, when it's translated into Greek like the New Testament, the Septuagint, this word is also used in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 19 with Elijah, who was opposing Ahab and Jezebel and the false prophets of Baal. And this is what it says I, Elijah said, I have been very jealous. That's our word for provoked. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. This is that idea of being inwardly provoked, jealous for the glory of God. That's what Elijah said. That's what Paul is saying when he saw all these idols in this city, realizing how far from God the city was. He was jealous for God's glory to be exhibited in this city, that he would receive the glory that he alone is due. Church, hear me this morning. As important as it is for us to plant churches in our own backyard and around the world so that our neighbors and our friends and loved ones and people that we've never even met will come to know Jesus Christ and spend eternity in heaven, as important as it is for us to pray for three and invite two and try to bring the gospel to one in our three, two, one, as important as it is for us to do that for our love for that individual, our first and our highest priority behind church planting and evangelism is that God would receive the glory and be worshiped as he alone is due. That's our first and highest motivation. 
The fact that we then get to enjoy our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, and before all of eternity, but what are we going to be doing with them? Worshiping God. That's icing on the cake. That can't be our primary motive for everything that we do, anything that we do here. Our primary motive has to be sola deo gloria. God alone gets the glory. How we proclaim, it's crucial. A godly, God-honoring approach. How we proclaim is crucial, but what we proclaim is also crucial because it's not gracious proclamation if what we are proclaiming is a watered-down, fraudulent, false gospel. It's not gracious to give people part of what the Word of God says and skip the inconvenient portions or the hard portions. How we communicate is important, but what we communicate is also important. Paul had a God-honoring approach, but he also had a God-oriented message. That's our second requirement. If we're going to proclaim graciously, we have to have a God-honoring approach, and we have to have a God-oriented message. Look at verse 24. He begins to proclaim to these group of people, to the Areopagus, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He begins to give them a message that focused their hearts and their minds on who God is because they did not know him. And he starts out by telling them, God is our creator. Everything that is here is because God created it. It's been my experience in our culture today that this first part of the God-oriented message is as vital today as ever before because so many doubt God's role in creation. Having been, you know, soaked and saturated with the teachings of evolution, our culture oftentimes wants to reject that God had a role in creation. Christians, let me tell you, as part of bringing a God-oriented message, we have to know how to discuss this with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. Can I give you a hint, give you a tip this morning? A, a God-honoring approach in this is to not get engaged in a debate over the particulars of creation and evolution. To do so is actually to go beyond the Bible itself. The Bible does not tell us how God created everything. It doesn't give us all the particulars that we want. It just tells us what? That he created everything. One of the best things that we can do, church, when we engage those who do not know Jesus Christ is to not get bogged down in questions of creation and evolution. Get to the point of just saying, is it possible for us to agree that God created it, how he did it, We'll find that out ultimately in heaven. The important truth is that God created everything, not how he did it. Verse 25 says, Nor, not only is God the creator, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Not only is he our creator, he's our sustainer. Every blessing that we have in life down to the very breath that we breathe and the air that we breathe is because of God. And he made from one man every nation of mankind 
it's kind of interesting, even just this week in the New York Post, I read an article that uh, the scientists who in Switzerland and other institutions have been part of the genome project and they've been studying all of the DNA of humans and animals and they released an incredible report this week and their conclusion was this, that all of us, regardless of our nationality, ethnicity, color of our skin, whatever, we all descended from one single pair of parents. Somewhere between 100 and 200,000 years ago, they said every human being has come from one single pair of parents. And by the way, all the animals have come from one single set of parents, dog, cat, whatever it may be. So the DNA shows it. I wanted to write to them and I said, congratulations on your study and the findings. Would you like to know their names? <laughs> right? Uh. Because the Bible tells us who that first couple was. And the Bible tells us this story of how the animals are gathered two by two. And then they repopulate the earth. Isn't that interesting? Science is catching up with the Bible. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Not only is God the creator and sustainer, God is sovereign over everything that happens in this world, down to where the nations are established and built up and torn down, down to the very lives that we live and the number of hairs that are on our head. God is sovereign. And listen, when you bring this to anyone who does not know Christ, it's going to be pushed back. Even for Christians, this is hard. What about evil in the world? That's going to be one of the biggest things that you face. But church, understand something. The greatest evil that has ever been foisted in this world was the execution of the perfect God who took human flesh, Jesus Christ. That very evil act, the murderer of the perfect God-man who lived the life that we were to live, that is the most heinous, atrocious, unjust act in human history. And God ordained it. The scriptures teach us that Jesus did not go to the cross by accident. Jesus went to the cross because before the foundations of the world were established, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided together that he would die for our sins. Sovereign. And why is, it, is this important? So that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That word feel, it's a very rare word. It only appears a couple of times in all of the Greek literature. Bible, secular literature, whatever. One of the times it's used, one of the few times it's used, is in one of Homer's writings. Now, I'm a huge fan of Homer. Not Homer Simpson. Homer, the Greek writer, even though Homer Simpson's okay at times. But anyway, um, I, as a kid, I grew up reading the Iliad and the Odyssey and Bullfinch's mythology and Edith Hamilton's mythology. And I just read them and reread them and reread them. I loved those stories as a kid and as a teenager and even as an adult, I occasionally returned to them. And one of my favorite stories in the Odyssey, the story of the Odyssey, you know, this is the story of Odysseus returning from the war at Troy. And you know, you're talking about a very bad, you know, GPS unit. I mean, he just got everywhere, right? And he's away from home for just forever trying to make, and, and he lands one day on, a, on an island. 
And this island is inhabited by giants. Anybody remember this story? The Cyclops, right? And the Cyclops has an eye in the middle of his head. And of course, they had a wonderful dining tendency. They ate Odysseus's men. And he captures them, and they're penned up. And he's snacking on them whenever he gets hungry, right? Until finally, Odysseus and his men, they do something. They, they sharpen a huge log, and they put out his eye, and he's blind. And so then, uh, you know, they're still trapped in this cave, and the Cyclops, in order to not lose them, as the, every day as he would take his animals out to pasture, he would feel around the animals... But Odysseus and his men were hiding. Do you remember that story? And, and they were underneath the animals, and so they were able to escape the, 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 the cave. You see, that, that scene of the Cyclops groping around and touching and trying to feel the animals to make sure that Odysseus, that's this word here. And the idea is that humanity in our natural state, this is what we're doing towards God. We are blindly groping and feeling our way. We know that there's something up, but we don't quite know the answer to it. This is humanity and the state of humanity because of sin. God has planted his knowledge, knowledge of him in our hearts. We've been created in his image. We know there's something wrong with life and we grope around searching for answers and god says and paul says to these greeks we seek god perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from each of us for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring as important as it is for us to understand that God is the creator and sustainer and that he is sovereign, it is important for us to realize that God is knowable and he wants to be known. He wants to have relationship with us. He's revealed himself and he desires to commune with his creation. He's knowable. And as he concludes this message to him, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world and righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Our sovereign, sustaining, knowable God, he's knowable, because he is our redeemer. For God so loved the world. How pertinent is this verse at Advent when we celebrate the coming, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and we look to the second coming. For God so loved the world that he gave. Why does he love this world? Because we are his creation. And there's a desire within the heart of God to have fellowship and communion with those who he's created in his image. And he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever will trust and believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Are you here this morning? And you're groping in your life for answers. You know there's something wrong. And you're feeling your way to trying to find solutions to what's happening in your life but you're going about it like a blind man. Your hope is this good news that Paul gives to the Areopagus 
that God has loved us so much that for everyone who he has called in his name, he has sent his son to redeem us. You may be groping for answers, but Paul says the answer is this one who was resurrected from the dead, Jesus Christ. For there is no other name in heaven given to men by which we can be saved. Proclaiming graciously requires a God-honoring approach and a God-oriented message. And finally, folks, it requires a God-empowering security. Now, when Paul held his invitation at the end of this message in the choir saying, just as I am, the court just ran down the aisle to receive Christ, right? Not at all. Not at all. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They sneered at him. They scorned him. But some said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined him and believed, among whom was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Listen, when you approach someone to give them the good news of Jesus Christ, no matter how graciously you do that at times, you're going to be insulted and mocked and scorned. It's inevitable. You know, Paul didn't get defensive and yell and scream and do what we see happening on the television today. Instead, he exhibited that humility that can only come from Christ, who when he was on the cross paying for our sins, men and women scorned him and mocked him and sneered at him, and they spit at him and they abused him, and he responded with this God-originated humility. And this is where we are as Christians. When we interact and we proclaim the gospel and the good news of Jesus, and we can build bridges and we engage, some are going to listen some are going to mock and scorn, maybe even end a relationship over it. It happens. Church, we are responsible for how we approach people and for the content of the message, but we are not responsible for the results. The results are God's responsibility. We own how we interact and how we approach, and we have to take ownership of the message itself and do that work of building bridges and seeking God's wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit as we interact with individuals. That's our part, our responsibility, our role, but the results are God's. And so the good news here is that it gives us confidence and security. We just rest that as we could give out the word of life in a winsome, gracious way, God will then do the work and bring it home because he's the one who brings salvation. The pressure is not on us to, to have a better presentation, to have yet more knowledge and everything. Our call is to obey, to graciously proclaim, to become friends and love those who are in our community as we brought to you three, two, one, uh, praying for three, and befriending two, becoming a friend that is a friend through thick and thin, regardless if they ever agree with your beliefs, your faith, your political positions, whatever, loving unconditionally, befriending unconditionally the way God has befriended us, and then trusting him to open doors so that at least one of these we can share the gospel with. This is proclaiming graciously. Lord Jesus, help us to be that kind of church.
a church that is not known for what we are against, for what we scream about or shout about or build walls against. Help us, Father, to be a church that is known in this community that builds bridges, that reaches out to all, who is willing to bring into our gospel community anyone who seeks relationships and wants to know you. Lord, this, what Paul did in Athens, it's scary and it's hard, but we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So give us the wisdom that we need, the power that we need. Help us, Lord, to be bold in our testimony, to not worry about results, not worry about messing it up, but to trust you that you will speak through us those times when you give us opportunity. And when you do, Lord, may our speech and our conversations be gracious proclamations of your goodness. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.